everything I learned about business in terms of when I have a tough decision to make, I think back to what my mom told me and I go there for guidance and it almost always works out. And the tougher the decision, the more you rely on the same basic instincts and same basic values. Welcome to Speaking of Business, a conversation with Canadian innovators, entrepreneurs, and business leaders. I'm Goldie Hyder, President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. I'm speaking to you from Montreal in the downtown office of Power Corporation. For nearly 100 years, this influential Canadian company has managed and guided long-term investments in Canada and around the world. And for decades, it's also been synonymous with the Demeray family. Paul Demeray took over running the company in 1968 and then handed responsibility to his sons, Andre and Paul Jr. But in 2020, the brothers named Jeffrey Orr the company's new president and CEO. What was it like for him to pick up the reins from such a storied family business? How is Power Corp living its mission and values today? I'm just thrilled that Jeff is able to join me to talk about the company, his own journey, and lessons he's learned throughout his impressive career. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks very much, Goldie. Well, let's start there. Uh, you had big shoes to fill when you became president and CEO of Power Corp. Uh, how did you approach your new role? I approached it with one of uh, trying to build on what we had built over the previous decades. Fortunately, I had been part of that, both as an advisor and then working for uh, several decades at Power Financial. So I've been very close to Paul and Andre. And we had a shared joint vision as to what we wanted to do. And when we have that unity and that support, it actually felt pretty natural. It just kind of went from one day to the next. It was like a Monday and came into plug work and on play. Tuesday and plug and play and everything carried on. Let's educate the audience about Power Corp. Because, you know, I mean, first of all, I can't think of a cooler name for a corporation than Power Corp. But its origins were really about power originally. But how did it evolve into what it's become today? And what is it today? Yeah, so thanks for picking up on the Power Corp. It was, when it started, an energy company supporting the construction of power plants and electricity and hydro and dams. And it ended up getting nationalized as Hydro-Quebec and Ontario Hydro and BC Hydro were formed. It ended up with a lot of cash. And that cash was then reinvested. And then in 1968, Paul Demmer came along and purchased control of the business. So power is, is not about exercising power. It's about providing energy. It had been looked almost like a mutual fund when uh, Paul Demmer Sr. took it over. He started to concentrate the investments into smaller holdings with much more important positions. And financial services became an increasingly important part of that all the way to where it is today, which is that we are in effect on a route to becoming a financial services holding company versus being a conglomerate, which is the yeah, way you would have defined it. The suite that's within that conglomerate. We basically operate in five developed countries, and then we have important investments in China. So we are in the business of helping people save and manage their financial risks. So basically, that's investments and insurance products. And we do that in Canada, the United States, uh, England, Ireland, Germany. And then we have uh, important um, minority investments in China. And so we would have brands like Canada Life, uh, Great West Life, IG Wealth Management, formerly Investors Group, to you know emerging companies in Canada like Well Simple, McKenzie. I just named the Canadian brands. Yeah, no, I think that's helpful for our listeners to know. I want to talk to you about the fact that you're now, in some ways, acting as a mentor to the next generation of Demerays. What can you tell us about how you're going about doing that? Mentoring is not about doing. Mentoring is about letting other people do and then trying to 
help coach and guide and and share your own personal lessons and sometimes putting some boundaries around uh, where people can go. So it's it's a very subtle coaching role, I would say. And so each of uh, Paul three and, and Olivier have got parts of the business that they're responsible for doing a really good job building those businesses. And I'm, I'm there to kind of be there as a background coach, as well as, as I said, providing some guidelines. It's going to be different though, right? I mean, you're going from a father who gave it to two sons and two sons who are now giving it to their sons. So they're cousins. How are you approaching sort of making sure that the long-term succession for this company is in good hands? Yeah, I think by doing what was done in the previous generation, which is that Paul and Andre were well coached, they had lots of experience, and then they were given responsibility, and were well surrounded. And I think that's what we're doing. And, and how the future of that plays out is still very much an unwritten story. Uh, and not one that's, uh, you know, that is for the next few years. But at some point in the future, there'll be decisions made. It's, as to, it's a story of, of, of many Canadian businesses, irrespective of size and scale and longevity, is succession planning in the next generation and getting it right. So you've got a big, a big job there. But, um, you know, I heard uh, you speak to university students on the subject of leadership more broadly. One of the things you said in there is you succeed by doing what's right. What do you mean by that? I think people have the impression, particularly when they're new in their careers, that there's a different set of ethics and values that apply in business than apply in their personal lives. And I think that's not the case. I think, in fact, people succeed by bringing the same values that they have and that they're taught by their parents and taught in their family life and how they would treat their friends. Those same values apply in business equally. And I think people that exhibit those values overwhelmingly are helped by that and people that exhibit poor values, if they do succeed, it's in spite of those poor values. So I tell everyone, everything I learned about business in terms of when I have a tough decision to make, I think back to what my mom told me, and I go there for guidance, and it almost always works out. And the tougher the decision, the more you rely on the same basic instincts and same basic values. Our audience didn't see how I smiled at you when you said that, because when I do television, what I'm often thinking about is, what will my mom say if I said this to this person? Now, that's great advice. I mean, it's about core values and, and basic principles. Um, having said that, business is in a lot of limelight these days around the world, and it's getting a bad rap from many. And I know you've talked about the fact that there are turkeys amongst <laughs> in all society, but what does business need to do to sort of reestablish its role as a force for good in our society? Yeah, that's a really tough question. I wish I had an answer to that question. And I don't, Goldie. I wish it I had. It might be pearls. doing what you said, doing what's right. I, th I think it is doing what's right. I think it is also, I guess, being more visible in what we do in this way. You know, we, a lot of talk about ESG. Is ESG a good thing or is it a bad thing? I think in good companies have been doing well for society for a long time. They've been creating jobs. If they don't serve their clients, they don't stay in business very long. So good businesses are in effect about providing value to their communities and their societies. I think maybe with ESG today, we're being all held accountable to keeping score and tracking it, which is probably a good thing. But whether that's enough to have citizens of the country view business as a force for good or not? I don't know. I hope it is. I suspect it won't be. Well, part of leadership, of course, also requires what you described as luck. Tell me anything in your life that could have amounted to a role of luck for you that turned out well. You know, I view luck as a big part of everything. The luck for me was having people who believed in me and having met some people who 
looked at me and said, you know, Jeff, you can make it. You're working hard. You're honest. You're doing all the right things. Do you realize how good you are? And, you know, you bump into two or three of those people across a career and you go, am I ever lucky that I met them? Because they helped me hugely by, in fact, increasing my own self-belief. Did they validate what you believed or did they instill that in you? A little bit of both. A couple of those, well, actually, maybe all of them I can think of. A person who, uh, prior to me going to university, said to me, you know, you should go to the Western Business School. And I said, where's that? Is that out on the West Coast or something? I had no idea. And they said, no, it's the best business school in the country, and you could do really well. So there there was that. And then a couple of people in business who believed in me, but also coached me as well. So that is the luckiest thing. I mean, I can go through all kinds of things and you know, this work that people you meet along the way. It's the people you meet along the way. Now, through that, you've established your own sort of leadership approach, your leadership style. I enjoyed a couple of things I read about uh, your approach to leadership. One is you had indicated that, look, there's a perception that leaders operate at 50,000 feet and that they don't get into the weeds. And that you have said, in fact, leadership is the capacity to know when to be at 50,000 feet, when to get into the weeds, and how quickly to pull back up. Tell us more about how do you go about balancing that? Yeah, it's very hard, but I would say you oscillate between 50,000 feet and going right down into the grass and then going back up again. And you just do it in order to be able to have your team and the people around you ensure that they're looking through the details and that they are, in fact, paying attention to uh, all that they need to to make good decisions. But if you linger too long, you know, you're going to end up not making the proper decisions and not focusing on the right things. So it's a bit of a a discipline. We talk about it a lot in our group is kind of the leadership being able to not just be so high that they have no idea what's really going on. You make bad decisions that way. But when you get down into the details, you don't stay there for too long. Yeah, it's difficult to find the right balance. So you've got competent, capable people running these other companies. At what point do you might feel like, am I micromanaging? Yeah, so there's so many times in my career, and I think both when I was with uh, BMO Nesbitt Burns, as I was kind of growing up there in business, and also here at PowerCorp, where I walked into situations where I thought I knew everything, and I didn't. I'll tell you one story where Robert Graton, who was the CEO of Power Financial, when I was the CEO of Investors Group, and I called him up and I said, I'd like to come down and Robert, I wonder if you had a few hours for me. I'd like to talk about the distribution strategy of Investors Group. And he said, uh, no, I don't. And I said, well, Robert, that's crazy. Like, I mean, how can you can't spend a couple of hours? He said, he says, I'll give you eight hours or two days if you'd like, but I'm not going to give you two hours. That's not a real discussion. We won't even get into it. And then I said, okay, great. And then I'd like to bring this individual with me. And he said, no, I'd like you to come alone. I said, but Robert, the person is responsible for the strategy. It's their area. It is their strategy. And he said, exactly. When you're prepared to come and speak to me for a day or two days by yourself, I'll know it's your strategy. And he was teaching me a lesson to go in deep and own it myself. And yes, we're going to be having a high level discussion, but you have to own it. And so whether that's right or that's wrong as a business approach, that is the philosophy we've had here. A good lesson. The other thing that I wanted to just cap off the discussion on leadership on, something I've experienced personally as well, is the perception that leadership is about being decisive. And that if you take too long, you're indecisive. And I read that you had said, in fact, more often than not, leadership is about slowing that process down. And I know when I've done that, people think I'm indecisive, but there's a reason we do it. How is it that you're thinking about that? That's one of the hardest things about leadership, I find, because 
Everyone wants to have a direction and they want to get energized by a decisive leader. And yet on the more difficult questions, you actually need to take time, do more homework, and you need to energize people about what we need to learn and what we need to go and do and come back in a week once that work has been done to be able to have another discussion around it. And I think it's a really difficult part. Often say at the end of a meeting when we've gone around it and there's consensus, I would go, okay, great. Everybody go home and have a sleep and we'll have a conversation in the morning and see if we still feel the same way. Uh, It gives perspective as well. It's a critical lesson of leadership. And I, I know from experience that sometimes just that patience, that time creates a moment to think about something else where the group think didn't allow for it. And it might change the trajectory, maybe only once out of 20 times, but it could be pivotal. Yeah, I think it's more than once out of 20 times. I think when you take a little bit more time and get the decision right, you avoid a lot of mistakes. And that's important. All right, let's switch uh, journey here a little bit about your own journey, (laughs) where you come from, what you've been doing and so forth. You know, you had a young family, I guess, when you first started out, they're now three adult children. I'm wondering, thinking back, uh, life was very different, environment was very different socially and, and otherwise. If you could do it differently, would you do it differently? Or do you like the way you did it? I think that I at one point made a decision to work in another city. The family was in Toronto when I was working in Winnipeg, and I, uh, a friend of mine said, hey, I've been asked to be a CEO in a Western company, and I'm going to stay in Toronto, and you did it, and uh, I think I'm going to do that. And I immediately said, no, don't do that. And I realized at that moment that that was maybe as close as I'd come to admitting to, uh, to myself that that wasn't the right thing to do, just because uh, it was a, you know, there were a few years where I was away from the kids more than I uh, would have liked to have been. But generally speaking... I look at where my children have turned out and what my wife Susie and I have done together. She's certainly with more hours, but I feel like I've put a lot of energy and time. And I mean, we took an attitude that we were going to work. And then when we weren't working, we were going to be with our family. So Saturday nights, Friday night invitations, uh, dinner invitation. Oh, are the kids invited? Uh, Are you doing this as a family? And I can't tell you how many times if it was uh, not with the family, we were saying, ah, you know, we're going to stay home. And so we we didn't have a lot of room outside of work and uh, and family, but uh, it's worked out really well. Well, it's a different era in which we're speaking, of course, post-COVID. There's much discussion taking place about an issue you and I have talked about before, which is the so-called return to office. What are your thoughts on this issue? How do we find the right balance? I have no doubt that people working together in physical proximity, seeing each other, having the spontaneous conversations, the creativity, the learning is essential for people's own personal developments, for teams to develop, for culture. Does that need to be five days a week, Monday to Friday? No, of course it doesn't. Technology will continue to play a role, but we've got to get people in a place where they're spending a lot of their time working together. So I don't have the exact formula. Technology is going to change how that works as well. I could not have imagined pre-COVID with Teams and Zoom and that, that we could have even been doing what we're doing now. And I think it's great that we are. You can have a board meeting now in AGM, I think, on on Zoom. We do all of that and having people, you know, spending a day or two and being more flexible and being able to be at home or being able to be somewhere else where they're working, it's all great. But I think that uh, getting people into physical locations working is, is the goal. And how that works is going to be different for every company. You know, I, I've got young children as well. I mean, young and they're young adults. And I'm, they're, we're talking a lot about this issue and trying to find some common ground. It's been difficult, to be honest. What's the role of employers, though, in creating the conditions that 
not just speak to the reasons, but provide the opportunities for these. Because there's many employers, and I know government in particular, my daughter goes to work with a computer that she has to unplug every day and bring back the charger, and they go there to log on to Microsoft Teams. Are employers really the ones who are going to have to pull this back into some kind of a new normal where there is that collaboration, that co-creation, that integration? Yeah, I think we have to create environments where people are happy to come to work, where it's easy, where it's more productive, where people realize the benefits of being there. And then my hope, and it's only the hope, is that you get people back together, working together, they're going to realize the benefits and they're going to want to be part of it. So employers have to do everything they can to make the environment great and to facilitate that. And then also, I think, be respectful that uh, different groups of employees are in different circumstances. So people who are working in certain jobs where they can be remote, some people that are not earning the same income as others, depending on what roles they're in, who are were spending three hours commuting and lots of their paycheck and disposable income to get to and from work. I think we should be a lot more flexible. So it's also not one size fits all, even within an organization. Now you've got to be, I think there's a lot of thinking and a lot of good that's going to come out of this, by the way. I think it will improve the quality of life of uh, people overall that they can work more remotely using technology. How do we do it where we don't give up all the creativity, the mentoring, the learning? Uh, that's the art here. Yeah, many companies, our colleagues around the business council that I've spoken with, you know, first of all, I've never heard anybody say it's because I don't trust my employees or that they're not working. I've not heard a single one say that. What they're all really believing in is the need for what you've described, which is really culture. And the importance that, you know, every one of our companies thinks that they have the secret sauce and it's their culture. That culture in some ways is now going to have to evolve, isn't it? It's going to have to be some employees who never come to your office. Yeah, it's culture, but it's also creativity and learning and spontaneity. Like when you meet with people in person, you have 10 conversations that you didn't have when you're on a Teams call in those little three or four minutes while you're waiting for the last person to join. And that's the social aspect of a Teams call. And then you're on to the business. When you're meeting in person, you're having five conversations in the hallway, in and out of the meeting, after the meeting. The people the stay. Lot, the reception. Yeah, meetings over, two people stay and have a conversation for 15 minutes. That's, that's the way relationships are formed, ideas are exchanged. Yeah. And I think, I don't know how you replace that. I, I really don't. Well, look, just wrapping up this section, combining what we were just talking about, one of the things I'd also read I wanted to allude to earlier is you said a lot of time people are focused on what they want to be as opposed to who yeah. they should be and who they want to be. Tell me more why you feel that way. Because I believe that that's how you progress through your career and your life. I actually never had dreams of being a CEO. I didn't. I just kind of was so, I was pleased where I was working and I, I wanted to advance for sure. I'm not saying I wasn't ambitious. I worked really, really hard, but I just tried to do the best that I could and contribute more. Again, it goes back to my mother, you know, give more than you take back. And you take that attitude at work or on a job or you're working with your colleagues and you take that attitude and great things happen. And so that comes down to aspire to be a good person, aspire to be a contributing member of a team, aspire to do your best. All of those things, you do them and then good things happen. And whether you end up in this role or that role, that point, it almost doesn't matter. You can, people work hard, put a lot of smarts and energy in. They're going to do well and have a good career. I really believe that. 
Let's talk a little bit about the global environment in which we're operating. In C-suites, everywhere I go, there's a lot of focus on what might be an inflection point in our history, that things are changing, democracies are are really being challenged, uh, less of them today than there were just a couple of decades ago. You navigate through businesses that are looking long-term and long-term horizons. We're witnessing the turning inward of, of many countries. We're, we're seeing, some argue, the creation of two worlds in some ways. How are you as an investor thinking about the long term and what are shifting you know, quicksand literally these days? I think that I, on the one hand, see more opportunity than I've ever seen and that technology continues to provide opportunities to change business models and advance business models for the betterment of everyone. I think that's the great opportunity. I've never witnessed the message being so diffuse so that so many different groups of people have completely different perspectives about what the truth is. And that's resulting in a splintering of politics and a splintering of of opinions. And I don't know how to pull that together at this point. Political leadership, business leadership, we got a great opportunity out there. The world technology is the friend of society. It's actually the friend of progress, I believe, in terms of making more people participate. And I think history has shown that. And yet it's also resulted right now, whereas maybe if you go back 10 years ago, people had two or three versions of the truth, depending on what network you were watching or what media you were following. And now there's a million versions of the truth. And it's, I I worry about society not being pulled together and being able to act in a cohesive fashion. Again, I wish I had an answer to that question, but I live in hope. I'm an optimist and I live in hope that at some point people will get tired of the disruptiveness and the negativity that's going on in politics and someone or some people will come out and have a vision that assembles people around some middle view of the world. And I'm living hope that the fatigue of what we're going through right now will allow some leaders to emerge that do that. What can we do, though? What can the business community do to give people that hope at a time where, as you've said, people are kind of going to their own corners? Continue to do the right thing. Continue to build businesses that provide value. Continue to try and be a positive force in society. I do want to say, uh, Goldie, the dichotomy between business leaders and the image that we have in the public and what I actually see amongst my colleagues that are running businesses is huge. Whenever there's an issue uh, that the business council talks about, across the board, the CEOs are there trying to do the right thing for the country. They really care about how do we advance the country? How do we advance the agenda? How do we make Canadians' lives better and yet of course in a backdrop that we're all running businesses but that's what they care about but as spokespeople ourselves we stand up and it's kind of you're immediately thrown uh, you know under the bus for being a business leader i think we just have to continue to act well do the right thing build good businesses and try and work with other groups in society increasingly so that it's not just coming from our voice but we're working with other groups that see that we're building a common front that's probably probably answer. And you've done some great work on uh, on facilitating that yourself, by the way. Well, I mean, look, I think the credit goes to Canadians. I've always believed that you should never underestimate the collective wisdom of the Canadian people. And too many of them are silent today and they need to speak up and we need to create the forms for them to do that. You mentioned the role of businesses is just beyond running your business. since There's an expectation uh, in society. There's at least a very significant transition underway right now where leadership is required. Uh, and that is the energy transition, the climate uh, change agenda. Where are we with that in your mind? And are we having the right discussions 
in terms of how we're going to get to where we need to get to? I think that the public dialogue is not realistic as to how we're going to get there. First, let me say, I think that the global climate challenge, global warming, that is amongst the very, very highest priorities we have as a people to solve. But getting a solution has got to be one that actually works. And uh, having an unrealistic dialogue that we're going to cut ourselves off from fossil fuels in a short period of time and just take the capital away from all the energy companies is not a solution. That's going to hit a brick wall. And so I think we should be providing capital to companies that are in the energy business. Why are we punishing the suppliers of energy when all the rest of us who are using it are getting away without any real repercussions? I would be having a much more realistic debate, provide capital to energy companies, help them provide cleaner energy, get there on a realistic route and not an unrealistic route. And I think a lot of the public dialogue and expectations are, are not realistic. Well, the role of innovation is certainly paramount to this. And innovation needs people and money. And so the mantra is for all global and leading investors, cut off the taps and just freeze out the energy companies from capital and we're somehow going to solve this issue. It's the opposite. I mean, we've got to help companies become cleaner and cleaner and cleaner and eventually wean ourselves from fossil fuel. That's probably where it goes to, but we're not going to get there on the route we are, are following right now. Now, one of the places that doesn't go over very well is in the province we're sitting in right now. And obviously they're heavily reliant on hydro, but how do we make that case that we're kind of all in this together when it comes to that sector. It's 10% of our GDP. It's what I talked about earlier. I don't have an answer to that question. That's where everyone's version of the truth ends up being different. You know, in this province, you couldn't have a pipeline that was basically already there that could have transported oil uh, of all places. And so we're still transporting oil by rail. And we've seen how disastrous that can be here in Quebec. And yet you still didn't have the public support. So decision-making is difficult when uh, you have everyone's different views of, of the facts. It's a tough one, but again, maybe it's working more closely together between government, private sector, and other parts of society to try and make more informed decisions. I raised Quebec because uh, I do want to ask you for the benefit of our listeners and the rest of the country, how is this province doing? What's going on? The, the reporting sometimes isn't always the same in outside of Quebec than it is inside Quebec. Are the minds and issues that Quebecers are dealing with the same as the rest of us, or are you, are you focused on other things here? They are the same, and I think that Quebec is actually doing pretty well right now. So first of all, just looking at Montreal itself, there's a technology boom going on here and, and a job growth boom. And, you know, I've been in and out of, of Quebec for the last uh, 40 odd years. And at times it hasn't felt very vibrant. And there are more young people walking around the streets and more jobs being created it's here in AI technology. It's an AI hub, but it's more than that. It's been a gaming. software hub. <laughs> yeah, it's gaming, but it's all the software. And it's still got its roots in, in engineering and all that came up, you know, the, the history of this uh, city who had a great engineering background. So I think that's the Montreal view. I think actually Quebec is doing well. I think that the politics always get tough and the um, laws around uh, immigration, some of, the, some of the laws around languages continue to make it a difficult environment and one from the outside that always looks like it's being extreme. I think anyone who's going to be in a political leadership position here is going to be sensitive to the language issues and that results in totally all kinds of all kinds of political decisions sometimes they're smart sometimes they're not smart from within quebec it feels better than when i'm traveling outside of quebec and hearing people talk about what's happening in in the province you feel good about the federation overall i am worried that we are getting the same fractured leadership that we've had in the u.s it's not as extreme but i 
I think populism is... Those no boundaries. <laughs> it, it's pretty prevalent in Canadian political debates, and I don't hear a lot of discussions around the real issues, and that worries me a lot about, about where we're headed. But we have a great country going here, and we still have fundamentally great things happening and great values. Someday somebody's going to stand up here and try and pull everyone together into the center and lead us to uh, where I think we can be, because we're very uniquely positioned in Canada, I think. Now, you're also, of course, very active in the United States. And, and I'm wondering, in your experience now, how concerned are you about what's going on down there? Well, you have to be concerned as a citizen of Canada and a citizen of the world. But I would never bet against the United States. I think the United States has got ultimately fantastic... Uh, and when it wants to do something. <laughs> that people get things done. I mean, uh, if we want to contrast, it's often very difficult to get something done in Canada, making a major decision. You know, people and my colleagues say, why would I put a lot of capital to invest in Canada? Because it's just hard to get things done. In the United States, you, you get things done and they get on with making changes and the business environment is the same. So we have put a lot of our capital in the United States uh, in the last uh, several years. We've built up that we're the second largest retirement group retirement provider uh, after Fidelity with our subsidiary Empower. We have 18 million Americans that we look after their savings at work. And so we're building a great business there. And, you know, we've done that over a very short 25 years. Yeah, <laughs> I say quite the achievement. Oh, it's, uh, it's a fantastic place to do business. And, and I wouldn't bet against the United States ultimately pulling their act together here politically as well. I certainly hope they do. How do you feel about the U.S.-Canada relationship and where we are in our, in our history with them? We have to continue to do things to remind them of how important the relationship is. I had lots of jokes in the last few weeks about sending smoke down their way just to remind them where, <laughs> who we were and that we could cause some trouble once in a while. No, but I think the relationship is still fundamentally healthy. I think we just need to be uh, vigilant in reminding our American friends that uh, we have a great relationship with Canada and they benefit from it hugely. We do as well. And not to forget it, not to take it for granted. Big picture. You know, obviously, there's a lot going on in terms of realignment of the world, if you will. How concerned are you? I raised this earlier about just the challenges that democracies are presenting in society, citizens, including business. Again, concerned. So if you go back over history, history has ebbed and flowed in periods where people are globalizing. And the United States itself goes through periods where it's thinking globally, and then it gets very myopic and thinks internally. We've gone through post-World War II, 45 years of globalization and reaching out in the world, getting closer together. And we've been on a tack now for five or 10 years where it feels like it's moving the other direction. You can't help but be concerned that that doesn't get out of whack and we don't get into more you know, military conflicts. That would ultimately be an, an awful thing for all of us in every, in every dimension. And so I'm worried about it. But I think what can people do and what can business do? I actually think when relationships get tense between countries, the politicians need to be and are often the ones leading the beating up of the other country. But there are lots of other relations that exist between countries internationally. And there are personal and family relations, there are sports and cultural ties, there are business relations. And I think those other parts of the relationships between countries need to continue to operate well and need to keep the lines of communication open, even when our political leaders are in a position where they need to be browbeating uh, the other side. It's long been said that capital is mobile and talent is mobile. Am I wrong in saying that that just seems even more so the case today? You bet. Most companies are able, certainly most large companies are able to invest their capital 
make decisions as to where they're going to put it and where they're not going to put it. Where do they put it? Tell me why they choose to put it somewhere else than here. It's always about opportunity and where you see an opportunity to increase a business to build something that's more successful and more meaningful and where you can do that in a way that you have confidence that you're going to get it done. And as much as I say we love Canada and we have big positions here, at net we've put a lot more of our capital into the United States in the last several years than we have in Canada. And that's because the opportunities for growth are better there. How do we control our own destiny here? How do we shape the future of this country so that it is one of prosperity and uh, you know, inclusive uh, growth for all? How do we get to that place? Yeah, so we've got a lot of things going for us, having said that. We have a democracy. We have an educated country. We have got great resources. We've got a great quality of life. We are tolerant of other societies. Pro-immigration, we don't always help the people when they do get here. They don't get accreditations. They, we make it difficult on them, but in fact, we're welcoming. So we have all of those uh, advantages, but we need to couple that with an environment where business feels that they can invest, not just business, for small business, medium business, big business, that they can get things done, they can get decisions made. Um, uh, we need to continue to invest in technology and productivity. Like Ultimately, if our standard of living falls too far behind other countries, this is not going to be the great place that people want to work. We need better policy, I guess. We need better policy making at the top because decisions matter. And we need to have a policy-based leadership in Canada. And I feel we've gotten away from that. Well, it allows me to make a point I heard from Suzanne Clark, who is the president and CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is the largest business organization in the world. They did an analysis using AI on the S&P 500. And what is the most increasing risks for boards to manage as we look forward? The highest ranking increase at a jump of 26% was public policy. You know, you mentioned capital seems to be an issue for a lot of corporations. What I'm actually hearing from them is they would invest the capital. It's the regulatory predictability that they're looking for. You bet. You bet. Absolutely. But again, I want to come back to perhaps we got to do it a different way. So your question, sir, I've complained that when business stands up, you know, we don't have a voice because we're immediately viewed as being, you're in it for your own good here. So getting more ability to get different parts of society together, spending time together and to kind of come to a common understanding that we actually have to do the right thing together as a way of getting broader support for key policy initiatives has got to be part of the answer. Just a final thought, again, because you operate in both U.S. and Canada. Is there culturally just a difference where we kind of settle? Yeah, I think there is an element of aggressiveness and decisiveness in the U.S. that is a notch above what exists in Canada. Like I said earlier, I think there's pros and cons to making decisions in a more thoughtful way. I don't sell Canada short either, I guess. I, I, to me, it comes down to making the right policy decisions. And I think Canadians built a pretty good country here and can hold their own anywhere. So I don't hold the Canadian psyche as a disadvantage against the American psyche. They're different for sure. Well, you've proven it at power. You've proven it through your leadership. And I, I know that those who listened uh, have certainly learned a lot from you. I want to thank you for doing this. Goldie, thank you. And thanks for all the great work you do at the uh, Business Council. Jeffrey Orr is the president and CEO of Power Corporation. If you'd like to hear more insights from Canada's leading employers, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast. Look for Speaking of Business wherever you get your podcasts or go to our website at thebusinesscouncil.ca. That's thebusinesscouncil.ca. And if you like what you hear, please give us a review. And even if you don't, give us one anyways. Until next time, I'm Goldie Hyder. Thanks for joining us.